Sports are such a big part of all of our lives. From the big plays to the unforgettable games, they continue to inspire us in unimaginable ways. But what happens to the athletes, the warriors, and heroes of our time when the game is finally over and the sport they love and work their entire lives pursuing greatness at continues on without them? How do they cope with the transition? How do they find purpose, reclaim their identity, and work towards a vision of the future? As a former professional athlete playing in the NFL for eight seasons, I know the unique challenges that these athletes face. On this podcast, these athletes will share their stories and how they navigate life beyond the game. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Life Beyond the Game. And really excited to announce that this is going to be the final episode of Life Beyond the Game podcast. I am going to be merging uh, this podcast into my other podcast, Quantum Coffee, because uh, really getting some clarity on kind of uh, my mission to share more about the healing journey and what that looks like and bringing on guests to talk about that. And um, I want to bring it all under the same platform so that we can continue to create community around this uh, this topic, including athletes and non-athletes alike. And I'm going to start bringing on the athletes to talk about their healing journey on Quantum Coffee. So that being said, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to you know, continue to follow me and the journey, uh, it's actually going to be easier now because all you have to do is go subscribe and follow Quantum Coffee because uh, all of these amazing athletic athlete guests and topics are going to be merging over there. Um, so that being said, there's links in the show notes. I would love for you to support Quantum Coffee in that way. And it's just going to continue to evolve and uh, really excited about the clarity I'm getting. Um, and today's guest is a really good final guest for Life Beyond the Game. His name is Dr. Uh, Chris Nowinski. Uh, and he is one of the leading um, advocates for uh, brain trauma, CTE science, and pushing and basically taking on uh, these behemoth businesses like the NFL uh, and really shifting the narrative and bringing into the public's awareness, the athlete's awareness, and everybody that's involved in these sports, uh, the damage that CTE really causes and the long-term effects. And it's all very new science. And so he's really passionate about, um, you know, bringing that science up to speed and really trying to uh, not only minimize risk moving forward by shifting um, the way these um, sports organizations really handle hits to the head, but also um, trying to, you know, come up with long-term care solutions and healing um, for those that have already been impacted like myself and uh, like Dr. Chris, who um, has also experienced uh, head trauma. He was a pro wrestler and he played football. Um, and so he's got a very fascinating story. And this conversation we had is really enlightening as somebody who's, you know, definitely directly affected by um, what he's pushing and talking about. Uh, I think it makes for a very good conversation. I was very curious and we talked about a lot in this episode and I know it's going to have a powerful impact on those who listen. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, if you know somebody who is a former athlete or you're a former athlete yourself and you uh, are worried like myself about these issues um, and the head trauma and the long-term effects, uh, this is gonna, definitely going to be a good podcast for you. If, if you know somebody that might uh, learn something from it, uh, go ahead and share it with them. Um, 
And I think one thing that's coming to me is, um, although there's a lot of fear, underlying fear for me, and I'm sure a lot of people that, um, have had hits to the head on the long-term effects, it's actually been a real gift for me because it's allowed me to show up and be more proactive about my brain health through different variables like nutrition, community, stress levels, sleep, uh, movement, uh, overall health. All of these play a role in the long-term brain health. Um, even if you have had hits to the head and, and me and Dr. Chris talk about this in the podcast, but that being said, it's, it's really about finding support and community and, and really learning the tools and ways to become the, the best version of yourself. And, you know, this whole holistic health movement, uh, it just really kind of puts it under man, magnifying glass for those of us that have experienced uh, head trauma. And, um, you know, it's something that I'm really passionate about as well. And I'm going to continue to be an advocate, um, trying to push these different um, things through, like supporting uh, Dr. Chris Nowinski and his um, movement toward shifting the narrative and, uh, and all this stuff. So uh, with that being said, I hope you enjoy the podcast and uh, definitely go subscribe for Quantum Coffees if you want to keep uh, following along on this journey and uh, share this with your friends as well. Thank you guys so much. Uh, really excited about the future and bringing all of this information under one roof uh, through the quantum coffee podcast. Um, and if you're an athlete and you're interested in joining community or learning more about alternative healing modalities, uh, go check out the heart collective.com. Uh, that's H A R T the heart collective.com. We're on, we're working on a lot of amazing things. Um, we're re visualizing, um, and building a new foundation for what we're showing up and, and providing the world. And a lot of it revolves around being a resource, uh, for, this deeper healing and growth for former elite level athletes. Um, so really excited about that. You're not going to want to miss it. Go check out the heartcollective.com, follow along on the journey. And if you're a former elite level athlete, you can either reach out to me directly, follow our newsletter and uh, just stay uh, in touch and uh, know that you're not alone and we're all in this together. Uh, the world needs deeper healing. Um, not just for those of us that took a lot of hits to the head. Um, but I hope you get a lot out of this podcast and I would love to hear what you thought. Reach out to me directly. Um, and yeah, without further ado, here's Dr. Chris Nowinski. Dr. Chris Nowinski, how are you doing, brother? Good, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, really excited to, to dive in. Honestly, uh, I know you have a lot of value to add, just the journey you've been on, the work that you're doing. We connected just a few weeks ago. You're putting together a study for former athletes to really study the brain and CT and concussions. And um, so I think it's really relevant in my life. And so I have a lot of curiosity around this and I'm excited to pick your brain. And I know there's going to be a lot of value added to the listeners as well. But let's start with uh, a little bit about you and a little bit about your journey and why you're so passionate about the work that you're doing now. Sure. So I'm Dr. Chris Nowinski. I, uh, my job these days is the CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. It's a 501c3 charity. And I'm also a co-founder of the Boston University CTE Center, uh, where we've been studying the brains of athletes back since 2008, trying to understand what all these hits the head did to us. I got interested in this because of my own experience. So I grew up just outside Chicago as a three-sport athlete, uh, picked football for college and then played as a defensive tackle for Harvard, where I was uh, all Ivy second team my senior year. Um, and, but it's still all Ivy, they tell me. I was and, on uh, West, so I mean, I can't. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay, good. All right. But that, yeah. Um, and then uh, I, after a brief stop in life, life sciences consulting work, I decided to try my hand at uh, professional wrestling and ended up uh, first on a reality show, Tough Enough. Some of you are, might be old enough to remember. And then uh, was on Monday Night Raw for a couple of years, in 0203, before concussions ended my career. Mm-hmm. And specifically, basically permanent post-concussion syndrome that I learned only after I'd been hurt was brought on by not only not acknowledging any of the concussions I had during my entire sports career and playing through them all and not because I didn't know they were really concussions. I didn't know what they meant, uh, but also having a lot in a short period of time that I didn't manage uh, specifically at the end where I was completely impaired but still wrestling matches because I didn't realize that not being able to remember the finishes or feeling nauseous when I got my heart rate up was anything to stop me from working because uh, I was brought up in that football culture. And uh, and what what time yeah. was this? Because I know a lot of things have shifted <clears throat> and a lot of it is because of the work that you're doing. But what, what was this time frame when people really didn't even know about brain trauma or these small little hits to the head and how they can really affect and damage, you know, not only the current, but like long-term. And I'm sure that's the, we'll talk about the research that you're doing with that as well. Yeah. So that was, that was June, 2003. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I, I was very lucky to meet uh, Dr. Robert Cantu, who was the kind of co-founder of the foundation with me, who taught me basically everything that I knew about concussions was wrong and everything that we were doing in sports was wrong based on the science of the last hundred years. You know, the, the fact that, it, you know, in the two thousands, even, you know, a little bit beyond that, we we're still putting people who were knocked out back into the same game. Like people were talking about that a hundred years ago is how crazy and idiotic it was, but we never changed the policies. And so basically I learned that I and everybody I played with have been putting ourselves at enormous risk for no good reason other than what I sort of uncovered was that people like the NFL and specifically the NFL were trying to sort of manipulate concussion policy and knowledge for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, designing, you know, designing policies that made it easier to put guys they wanted back in the game when they needed them or designing, uh, research that would say there were no long-term effects when we'd established a hundred years ago, they were. Um, and so we were all just like living in this illusion that concussions were no big deal. And so I decided, um, once Dr. Katie taught me that I, I read sort of all the literature ever been published on this. And I was like, oh, there's a story out there that needs to be told and we should change everything we do in sports around brain trauma. So I wrote a book called Head Games for False Concussion Crisis in 2006, um, saying, here's, here's the plan. And of course, uh, a book on neuroscience written by an ex-pro wrestler didn't fly off the shelves. <laughs> I, had, I had a little gap here in terms of like, I knew the plan, but I couldn't necessarily get people to pay attention. And to sort of cut to the beginning of all this stuff, it was when Andre Waters took his life back in 2006. Is that a guy you remember? Did you ever have a chance to watch him play? No. It was you're not, you're too young. No, no, Andre Waters was a strong safety for the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't so, recall. Yeah, so I grew up watching him. So he was, uh, I'm old, I'm, I'm significantly older than you. Um, but basically, you know, I'd learned about CTE. So it was sort of shifting from, we have a huge concussion problem. And then I learned about CTE and writing the book. And I wrote it just when Bennett Amalu wrote those first two cases of Mike Webster and Terry Long having it. And he wrote him his, his case studies in the journal Neurosurgery. And what was amazing back then is those studies were out there, but nobody in the press, the national press, ever discussed the cases. 
and I, I was sort of shocked because some people are saying this is a one in a million shot, you know, like, sure. We know boxers get this, but not football players. But then mm-hmm. I'm like, well, the first two come in positive, you know, one in a million doesn't come in twice in a row. And I realized that the only way to get an answer was to continue to get more brains for research. So when Andre Waters took his life in November, 2006, I first reached out to the medical examiner and then his family. And I facilitated his brain study. He became three of three NFL players studied. But the difference I made was I made a deal with Dr. Malu, who I gave the, the brain to that. If it came back positive, we wouldn't wait for a journal to be, publish it as a case report. We would take it to the press and say, look, People are dying and we need to figure out why. And I think it's because they're getting hit in the head and getting this disease. And so the New York Times made it a front page story in 2007. We started the foundation. We started the research center. We've been off to the races ever since trying to solve this problem. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about and unpack here. And I have a lot of questions coming up. Uh, First, just to create context, maybe for people that aren't familiar, what's the difference between a concussion and what does that mean specifically? And then the difference between CTE and how would you describe that? And what are the differences? Yeah, and this is an essential question because we've been conflating those terms in the press. There's a movie about CT called Concussion. But the more we learn about those things, the more we learn that they're, they're very different animals caused by the same thing, getting hit in the head, right? So a concussion is the one that you and I and, and lots of folks listening are familiar with because we've had them. And that means over the head that changes how your brain functions. So there's sort of two ways to think about it. First is that you get hit hard enough that your uh, basically your neurons start misfiring, right? There's a basically a big chemical and electrical changes that happen, um, and for days, weeks, and, and really a month or more, your brain is malfunctioning. It's sort of getting back to where it was because you've had these releases of um, of ions and, and changes in neurotransmitter function and changes at the level at which your neuron will fire. And so essentially you injure your brain, a bunch of energy goes through your head, your brain malfunctions and it takes time to recover. The other side of it is we're learning that your brain also sometimes has physical damage. And that's when your brain often twists. Twi- your brain is like the twist. If you have a twisting motion, axons pull apart and you get physical damage too. And that's often more correlated with severe, more long-term symptoms is that your brain's plasticity has to take over to sort of reroute around the damage. So that's a concussion. It's a discrete event that causes a process that usually for most of us will recover within days, weeks, or months in terms of your brain functioning, but it also can leave permanent damage on the brain, which is why if you get too many concussions, some of those symptoms can become permanent. Mm. But that is, it does not, as far as we, under, you know, the, how, how we classify it, cause a degenerative brain disease. It doesn't keep going. Once you get a concussion, it sort of eventually will sort of stop. If you have time CTE, to feel like, like not going out there as a football player, but getting <clears throat> a concussion one week and then going back out there, it's really quite dangerous. Correct. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with CTE, what we're learning is that, and this is sort of obvious when you put it this way, You've had concussions, and but you've also remember you were hit in the head plenty of times that weren't as hard as those concussions, mm-hmm. but you thought you were fine and you kept playing. Yeah, right? 60 times a or, game. Yeah. And so though we're learning those big hits that don't cause functional changes or anything you can feel are causing microscopic brain damage mm-hmm. and microscopic uh, inflammation in certain places of your brain. And we believe that, or the evidence suggests that 
your brain was never really supposed to be hitting the head over and over again, right? Like your brain has a mechanism to take a big hit to the head and recover. Mm-hmm. Your brain that did not develop a mechanism to get hit in the head a hundred times in a week, over a week, week after week after week, and not have something start to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're finding with CT is that these hard impacts that you can't feel, they don't cause symptoms. You don't have pain nerves in your brain. They don't cause pain, but they're causing these little tiny microscopic lesions that somehow start going out of control and grow after you stop getting hit in the head. So you could end your career with one of you know, hopefully none of these lesions, but you start with one or two or 50 and then they keep spreading. They basically cause a structural element of your brain called uh, tau, uh, tau protein to start to sort of fall apart. It's like a crack in the windshield and it just keeps going. And if, as it grows and as more cells become impaired and then die, you start having symptoms and those symptoms uh, over, you know, 20 or sorry, over like 30, 40, 50 years and start causing dementia. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. the underlying fear that's developed, I think, in me, myself personally, and I'm sure a lot of athletes that, you know, have these type of hits to the head is, you know, when you're going, going crazy, quote unquote, or, or you're starting to lose yourself, it's, it's literally the perception in the lens in which you're viewing your entire reality. And so it's not this like, oh, I broke my arm, like, let's fix it. It's this entire way you perceive reality and how you see yourself, how you see the world and your memories. And it's just a really frightening, scary thing to deal with the brain because it's more than just, it's, it's somewhat, it's just, it's hard to like pinpoint what the problem is. And you don't know you're going crazy unless it's a reflection from maybe your families are like, Hey, you're acting a little bit off, or maybe you feel a little bit depressed, but you don't know. And, you know, just seeing all these athletes that are coming up with these kind of dimensional problems or, what have you. It's just, it's a really frightening thing for me. And it's part of the reason I kind of got, you know, pro- proactive in my brain health and trying to figure out ways to take care of it. Um, but let's dive into the research on what you guys are finding. You said you've, before the podcast, you guys have had over a thousand brains donated, all former athletes. Talk a little bit more about the research and what it's showing as far as the findings and how it's evolved over the last decade or so. Sure. So when we started this disease CTE, and, and, and most of our research is CT, so let's, let's dive in there, um, is it's a disease we've known for a long time. It was called punch drunk because we saw it in boxers, but we just stopped researching it, sort of, and we, and we never really dug into how does it happen, how does it start, where does it start, why does it start, how does it spread, what symptoms does it cause. It was, it was, it was ad hoc, haphazard research, and then we started this research center, and now we formalized it. And so... <clears throat> When we started in 2008, we didn't even agree on what was CTE. The National Institutes of Health didn't have it as a definition. It was not a diagnosable condition. And, uh, but now it is. Basically, because of the work we did, NIH has been funding the work and, and actually now considers it in the Alzheimer's disease and related diseases family. It has a spot. And we have an agreed upon definition that of this lesion of abnormal tau around blood vessels in the cortex of the brain. It's sort of the diagnostic lesion. If you have that lesion, other diseases don't have that lesion. If it has both neurons and glial cells, um, that is CTE. Um, <clears throat> what's hard about this disease is we're sort of looking at it a little bit backwards from the way we've looked at other diseases throughout history. So we're at a place of advanced science, right? So we have you know, um, electron micros, cryo-electron microscopes where we can see things that we used to not be able to see. Um, 
most diseases like Alzheimer's disease started with a patient with symptoms. And they said, well, what's causing these symptoms? And then eventually they sort of worked backwards and found the actual disease in the brain to find what that was. For us, we're finding the disease first that sort of knowing it mimics Alzheimer's disease. But even the tau protein that we're, we're now using as a diagnostic lesion, you couldn't test for tau protein until the 1970s. So it's a, it's a new disease. And I think that's create And the fact that working backwards from pathology of clinic, the clinical symptoms is, is what is making this controversial because there's really not much that's controversial now about the disease. So let's say with our thousand brains, um, we have 30 different exposures to brain trauma. And we call them exposures. It's the scientific term for getting hit, you know, exposure to brain trauma is getting hit in the head or trauma that causes energy to go to your head or a fast head movement. So we're talking blast injuries and in our veterans, we're talking could slip and fall, not strike your head, but that fast movement of your brain can cause injury. But if you're trying to get a gauge of like who has it in this country and what are the problems, just sort of looking at who's donating brains to our sort of brain, our brain bank now that it's so well known is interesting because we have a thousand brains of, of the first thousand, 708 were football players. Mm. The 29 other exposures are the other 300. So we're talking about uh, your primary exposure, 66 military veterans. We're talking about uh, about 50 hockey players, about you know, 25 soccer players, 25 rugby players. So there's a couple things to understand there. One is that we don't have that many old soccer rugby players in the United States. So to understand what's happening in those diseases, you have to go to other countries. But, he, but it also says, Bob, we've probably got a really big problem in American football, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we're the ones who sort of own CT in this country. Um, and then what we've learned, I mean, the most relevant thing to this audience probably is that, you know, the, the argument of whether or not head impacts are causing this is, is over. If you look at the literature, not from the National Hockey League's point of view, because even the NFL has admitted they're, <laughs> they're linked. The NHL will not because, um, I don't know, <laughs> we, that's a whole other issue. Yeah, we'll dive but, into that in a second. Yeah, hits to the head caused this disease. In some people, right? So not everybody gets hit in the head thousands of times will get it. But if you get hit in the head thousands of times, you're at risk for this. If you get one concussion in the absence of thousands of hits, there's almost zero chance you get this disease, mm. right? It's it's the, it's the repetition is what we understand today. Um, and then uh, we at the earliest stages, we're starting to understand that even these small lesions, some of them are in very important parts of the brainstem that control things like mood and can influence things like sleep and so and can cause uh, psychiatric symptoms so we think you know we're getting a lot of young people who are dying young sometimes from suicide who have stage one cte and the more cases we're getting the more we're understanding from other diseases about the consequences in these brainstem nuclei we think some of that is related to the disease but for most people at stage one you probably aren't going to have big problems and then as it progresses there's four stages stage two Average age is probably about 40 diagnosed or in your 30s. You have it, the disease has been spreading. You have more symptoms, start to have problems with executive functioning, you might have problems with again, mood, anxiety, um, what they call neurobehavioral dysregulation. Stage three, that's where the Dave Dewersons and the and and some of these more better known cases of people who have like sort of mid-life, what they thought were midlife crises, but are really probably related to their brain. And stage four is almost always associated with dementia. Mm. Um, and this is something you can't, you can't really diagnose until post, you know, death, right? Like you actually have to go back and right. look in the brain. 
is there some type of research coming out where we're going to be able to see and image people's brains? And why can't we see it right now with all the technology we have and we have to actually go in and physically cut open the brain to see if someone actually did suffer from CT? That's a really great question. I'm going to just add one more point to the what we know and then we'll jump into that. Absolutely. That is, that's the what we don't know, how to diagnose this, how to treat okay. it, right? The other, the other thing, I think the thing that's really important for the public to understand because it prevent, presents such a big opportunity for prevention is that you know, not only if you don't get hit in the head, you won't get this disease. We've looked at enough control brains to see it's only a nose who get hit in the head. Um, but it's a dose response disease. It's very much like smoking and lung cancer. That if you get hit in the head, you know, a hundred times, your your risk is not going to be as bad as someone who's hit in the head a thousand times. And football is the one place where you have the most data. And so we can actually run analyses to say, what's your increased odds each year you play? And what we found is that your odds of developing CT probably go up somewhere between 20 and 30% per season you play. So the problem with football is it's not one year of football that's going to destroy you. The problem is playing too many mm-hmm. and playing, you know, the, pro- the problem with football is being good at it, right. And being invited to keep playing in college and invited to keep playing in the pros and, or starting too young. And so basically for those who we've studied, who've played like 20 more years, nearly all have it, right. We the famous study in 2017 that scared us all was one ten of one eleven NFL players we studied had this. Right. But also it's 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 a minority of those who played um, just through high school. And it's even a smaller share of those who played just in high school. Right. If you play just in high school, you shouldn't get it, although people will still get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this dose response thing sort of directs the idea to start later and play less. <laughs> and that means don't hit in practice and all these other changes in the game that we're starting to make. Mm-hmm. So so that's it's sort of important to say. And and the reason we emphasize prevention is because as your question indicated, we don't have the answers to how to diagnose this and treat it. We don't know how many people have this. We're just getting these insights from the brains. And that's because we haven't done the work. So essentially this tau protein, that's the hallmark of CT, it, we have not been able to image it because it's basically you have to get something through the blood brain barrier. It doesn't show up in an MRI. It doesn't show up in a CT scan, but we are on the cusp of doing it. So basically companies have now invented what they call uh, ligands tracers that basically you can inject radioactive tracers you can inject in the arm will attach to the tau protein for half an hour and if you jump in a a certain type of pet scan you can image the tau protein but since we've been doing this work we learned that the alzheimer's disease which is also the other biggest the the biggest tau protein disease um we've we've made Tracers that are starting to image it for Alzheimer's, we don't have them for CT yet because the tau misfolding is slightly different. Mm. So, well, so, we, so because this is the this is the study you're doing, and this is what we connected over is you're trying to get um, former athletes within a decade of retiring to come into the study so that you know we can really help pay it forward for future generations on really trying to solve and and be more proactive with treatments and healing moving forward. So you want to talk a little bit about the study you're doing with this new technology, really trying to you know, forward the, the research in this area? Yeah. Uh, so this, the study that, that you and I spoke about, um, it, we're working with Johns Hopkins to understand how does the brain try to repair itself after a football career? And so we're recruiting former NFL players who are within 10 years of their last game, who played at least one season. And they're going to Baltimore and they're doing a special type of PET scan and an MRI and some other tests. And because what we're learning, what we did with the pilot is we found 
in the, we're not actually looking for CT specifically in the study. We're looking for something that we think could be related to the process, but we don't understand it yet called um, activated microglia. So there's a type of cell in the brain it's a glial cell, so it's not a neuron. It's a different type that we historically think of as a support cell, a maintenance cell. It helps keep the brain healthy. And these cells have the ability to move around your brain. And so basically, if you get a brain injury, these cells will go into the area and try to stabilize the area. So with a brain injury, you could have breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. You could have bleeding. You have all these things. And we, you know, microscopic bleeding. These cells literally can act as a plug, you know, to stop, stop blood from coming in or stuff going out. They can tag a neuron that's damaged beyond repair and say you're programmed for death and clear out the space and help you know create it's basically a lot of your brain's plasticity of these microglia so um what we're trying to sort of uh understand is we're seeing that in former football players they have more of this microglia that are, are active even years after they stop playing and we're trying to understand is this a benefit are they still repairing things or is this uh, something bad? Is it a, something that's got out of control and you stop? Um, and how does it associate with all the other things that might be happening in their brain? Um, so this, this is sort of an important piece of the puzzle to try to figure out what's happening to those of us who took 10,000 hits to the head, mm. even years later. And it might be a sort of segue to understanding, is this a CT type process? Uh, we are also working with Boston University and, um, uh, and UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, for older NFL players age 45 plus who have symptoms they think could be related to CT for a specific uh, study trying to diagnose CT in them using a new type of PET scan that we hope will bind to the abnormal tau we see in CT. Mm. Wow. First of all, I just, I'm blown away at the kind of scientific achievements and technological advances that we have of humans to understand like these just layers and layers deeper. And um, I think you explained it to me too. It's kind of like inflammation in the body, right? Like if you pull a shoulder, your body naturally sends inflammation kind of stuff there to heal it. But then as we know, over inflammation in the body actually is not good for you long-term. And so these natural healing things that go to the brain to help support, if they stick around too long, they might actually be causing damage. We don't know. That's what the study is really trying to facilitate. And just want to plug, if, if any former athletes that kind of fit that uh, demographic to participate in the study. And it's something that you really feel called to, you know, add value and, and support this, this really vision of really trying to help um, solve these issues. And you want to participate, uh, there'll be links in the show notes and I'll have, um, you know, Dr. Chris's information as well to reach out to him. I think he's looking for another 15 to 20 guys to participate. Um, and then I think the older uh, for the, the older generation study as well, We'll have links if you guys feel called to participate in that. Is there any final words around that study and, and kind of the impact that it has or if anybody that wants to get involved? Yeah. Well, I, I like the way that you put it, that you're sort of paying it forward, um, you know, for the next generations. But the other reality is, you know, like people like you and I are still young enough that the research that we do today could turn into a treatment in 10 years. Mm. And so the more that we learn today, this could benefit us because part yeah. of the understanding of CTE and, and the idea of like curing CTE is really stopping the progression of CTE, right? The idea that you can reverse it is, you know, way too far in the future. We just need to slow it down or stop it. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you, if I have this, I'm still, I'd be happy to like stop where I am today and say, good, it's the, uh, I've lost what I've lost, but I'm keeping the rest. Yeah. Uh, I feel but, good right now, know, right? It, yeah, exactly. But in 20 years, mm. you know, uh, you know, if we have something that stopped it, I may still be fine. But if, if we didn't, you know, I, there's still a shot. 
if, yeah. you, if you have it today to help yourself. Yeah, point. totally. I love that. Especially with how fast everything's, you know, shifting and we're changing and evolving and just all the deeper understanding. And this is what it takes, right? Is people showing up and participating in these studies. Um, so definitely if you're called, you can reach out to me and I can send you in the right direction. I'll, we'll have some links in the show notes if you feel called to participate in that. Um, I'd love to get your perspective because I know bringing this up is not obviously talked about the NHL and the NFL is starting to little like own it a little bit, but obviously it's not in their best interest to really take responsibility. And it, it talk about, you know, the first initial, like basically going up against this behemoth business that is the NFL, right? One of the biggest businesses and sports in the world and the amount of money they make, the amount of resources they have. And to bring up this thing that really is going to affect their bottom line and it's not good for business. Talk about the initial, when you guys came out, how it was received and kind of how that has evolved and, and still, I mean, it's very much an issue that they're, they're really not, you know, showing up and, and taking the proper protocols. And I can share a little bit about some stories that I went through even just a few years ago. I'd love to hear your stories. Um, yeah. So the NFL, you know, you sort of grow up, or at least I did thinking that the NFL was, you know, on the side of good, right? Like they, you know, they had, they had a Twitter and they had rules and if people misbehaved, they told them. And, and then you, you're, you know, your eyes sort of get opened up as you get older to the fact that, Oh, this is just sort of a, a business, whatever it used to be. Now it's a group of billionaires protecting their assets. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they behaved on this issue that, you know, there's been two, two types of denial. There's been the denial that you just don't want to believe this because it's so, it could be so bad. So there's been a lot of ex football players, like even, you know, the head of the NFL PA when we started, this was Gene Upshaw. And he said, this is absurd. He said, you know, I think he said it's like my dad had uh, Alzheimer's, but he, you know, he, he never played football. He worked in an auto factory and it was the, you know, should we say that working in the auto factory did it? It was like, it's not really the point we're trying to make. Um, so there's the denial of, I don't want to believe it, or, or I don't really understand it. And then there's the denial of strategic denial, which is this could cost us money, right? Mm-hmm. This is a workplace related injury in which we controlled the work environment. And, um, and so I think that was the voice that won uh, early on was that if you actually look historically, this issue's popped up here and there over the entire life of the NFL of people retired from concussions or worried about long-term effects. You know, if a lot of people said if boxers get punched drunk, obviously football players get punched drunk, but the NFL had the ability to squash it each time. Mm. And uh, this time, you know, I think the only thing, the only reason they weren't able to squash it was because we built the brain bank and we kept showing new cases and we built the numbers mm-hmm. because the NFL owns the media too. Right. And very strategically watch them go in my lifetime from selling the NFC to one network and the AFC to another network to now they are basically with every big company, they are partners in business mm-hmm. and they, and they have very publicly, it's sort of a known thing have called, whether it's uh, any, any of the networks who have ever done anything controversial on this issue and threatened them <laughs> in so many words to not cover this issue. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have a new PSA coming out with a very famous Hall of Fame NFL player has a very good relationship with the network who said, we can't cover this because it's the NFL won't like it. They're still doing it. So the NFL recognized those issues. They, they, they tried to quash it, said it was bad science. They pulled out doctors who had no business trying to refute the research, to try to refute the research. They very publicly, and if you watch the League of Denial documentary, you'll get a good deep dive into it. Um, hired a bunch of doctors and basically put together big tobacco-like research that wrong design, study the wrong population with the wrong tests, 
to claim that everything's fine. So we, we basically just relived big tobacco and we still are to some extent today, but it's about football. It's about this game that we all started playing as kids and these sort of, you know, this, this, you know, billionaire run cartel trying to squash it to protect their profits at the expense of players and their families. And that's, it's a, in plain English, what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Cartel. I love, I love that, that metaphor because it definitely, it feels that way. And I think as a player playing, I mean, it was always protect the brand and like, it's crazy how much it's like this manipulation of if you want to play, which everybody has this childhood dream of playing and it's so hard that you're there, that you're going to do anything you can to stay in there. So they have this control and then it's all about the brand, the shield. They talk about it all the time, like protect the shield. It's all about the brand. We don't really care about your personal brand, anything else. If it affects this kind of top down shield and it affects our kind of bottom line, then you will get rid of you or get you out. And it's just fascinating. And even now, you know, the work I'm doing with, you know, helping facilitate healing and support for the athletes in transition and just reflecting on the amount of resources that the NFL actually has and how little they actually put into, you know, long-term care or even helping, you know, athletes navigate the transition and how really challenging it is. And, and I've talked to a few people, it's almost like this reinstitutionalizing needs to happen into society and they just kind of let people go and, you know, they just feel chewed up and spit out and used. And there's really the, the resources that they provide for the transit. It's just really scattered. I mean, there's like five different nonprofits that you don't even know where your benefits live and your resources that are all competing against each other. And, you know, that maybe a couple interns working for these companies to tell you about your benefits. It's like with all the resources the NFL has, I'm just really kind of opening my eyes to like, wow, they really don't care about the players. If you're not actually adding value to the team and they'll treat you like your best friend and they'll pay you all this money. And as soon as you maybe get hurt or you're no good damaged goods, they'll let you go in a second and the next man up. And it's really becoming clear. Has there been any backlash? We'll talk about my journey with like concussions and that protocol and how that's really not shifting as much as I would, like it to, and I'm sure you'd like it to, but has there, was there any personal backlash and is there any personal backlash for you personally with the NFL? Have they like, you know, threatened you or kind of come at you a little bit? You know, actually less, less than you would think. Mm. Um, you know, I thought, you know, you, they, you, they could have been heavy handed and tried to discredit me. But then again, like I've done a good job of like, everyone knows I'm not the doctor in the lab, right? Like I've done a very good job of uh, identifying and collaborating with truly in, uh, truly brilliant scientists who are above approach. Mm. And so, um, you know, not, it wouldn't be that it's helpful to knock me down. But I, the other part of it is I think I, what's been funny about this is while the NFL has this corporate strategy, um, there's a lot of people in the NFL who pulled me aside over the years and said, thank you for doing this because it makes them feel better about their job, right? Because mm -hmm. they all know deep down the problem is bad. We, don't know, we all don't know the scope. Mm -hmm. But they, you know, people have all, everyone who has any human bone in their body is tired of watching their heroes suffer, mm -hmm. right? And suffer some of them very publicly. And now families are finally, you know, uh, finally have like a way for people to understand them. So they're stepping forward. Like, you know, uh, you know, Nick Bonacani was very public with his suffering, you know, at the end. And, and, and there's been so many. And it's because we now understand them. So I think that there are some, there are people there who, who are happy this is happening, but no, I, I guess, um, I, I thought I was, I was expecting more. <laughs> yeah. So where are we at now with kind of the journey is the NFL opening up a little bit more? Or are they still kind of pushing and taking a stance or are they starting to try and figure out a narrative where it's like, we can bring it in and help it, but, and give it a little bit of 
credibility, but we're still not going to give it all this thing and trying to figure out how to, how it fits in their narrative or how has it yeah, evolved over we, the years? No, that's a great question. It's changed multiple times. Let's see if I can tell the story quickly. So when we first started, they said we were crazy. And then we had a congressional hearing and it was very effective. And that's where they were called big tobacco and that didn't sit well. Mm. And so before the second one, they were, they basically, they were say NFL, you have to acknowledge all these things or else we're going to have another hearing. Before they had the second hearing, I got a call on a Sunday morning because uh, a reporter had said, hey, what, the NFL just gave you a million dollars. How do you feel about it? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I called the co-founders for the Brain Bank. They didn't know about this. And so basically, like the NFL decided to give us, it was basically, it came out of a meeting that Dr. Cantu had with Roger Goodell where he said, well, you should support the research, support research. No discussion after that. And then suddenly the NFL gave a grant. and we had to choose whether or not we'd accept it or give it a gift because there were no strings attached. Uh, and six months later, we accepted it. And I think they thought we would change our tune and we didn't. And we were well, there was a string attached, but not officially a string attached. So you guys actually it's used so, it for the research that, you know, you guys wanted it to actually support the vision, but they really wanted you guys to kind of slow down and shift your uh, direction a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Uh, you know, I think so. And, but and sort of what happened next was, they didn't renew our any you know grant for us. They said, "All right, we now admit after some exposés, stuff by the New York Times, other people that the, the the research that we've been choosing to do has been wrong, and has been designed poorly. We're going to let the National Institutes of Health choose. And so there's a mechanism through which you can fund the government to do this research using their their infrastructure, where they choose merit based research. So they, they gave thirty million dollars to the foundation, the NIH. The agreement was NIH chooses how to spend the money on CT research." And the NFL hands over the money. So the first time they gave out, uh, they were giving out about half of it for brain bank work. We won the merit process. And the NFL stepped in and said, well, we can't give it all to BU. So give it to the second place group too. <laughs> so they gave it to the second place group, taking half of it. That group never published one study on it because they had a terrible design and never should have been funded. And we, we ended up publishing like 60 papers off of that first group. The second half of that, $30 million was supposed to be for clinical research. We won it again. Bob Stern uh, from our team ran a, wrote a great grant. The NFL then, there's a 90-page congressional report about how they tried to stop the foundation for NIH to, for, from giving BU the money, declaring BU the winner. They, they had the, the head of uh, Brigham Women's Hospital at Harvard, who was a consultant for the Patriots, call the NIH friend she had and said, you can't, you know, they have the transcripts. You can't give them the money. They, they, they believe, you know, they, they are biased or they're this or they're that. NIH said, uh, no, no, they, they won. We checked your conflicts. They're not real. They're not, what you're saying are conflicts aren't conflicts. So the NFL just never gave the money. <laughs> they, they literally, they wasn't an escrow. They just said, we're not funding it. <laughs> so, wow. so, so NIH funded the money themselves and basically will never work with the NFL again. Um, and the, and the study's going on, it's called the, um, diagnose CT study, but what, but then when the NFL got a ton of bad press from that, they said, okay, fine, we're not going to work with NIH anymore. We're just going to, uh, select these seven experts sort of choose how to disperse a hundred million dollars new research because hundred million will wipe off the headlines. Yeah. Then they spent 60 million of that on helmets. Now, we could tell you before they started that study, any expert would tell you the amount better helmets can get is this much compared to what we need to fight. Mm -hmm. So it was more of a, I'd say it was a pure marketing spend to say, you, we can get the football industry to assume a better helmet will fix this. And then they spent $40 million on 
brain studies, they said it was on CT, but only one of the like 10 studies that they agreed that was on CT, the restaurant concussions. Yeah. It's such a conflict of interest, you know, and from a player's perspective, it is hard. There is a, a sort of denial because as a player, like I want to play the game. I love there's that there's millions of dollars on the line. And it's just such a hyper competitive environment that we're, we're kind of manipulated into this and almost forced in a way, because if we don't learn to play hurt or especially with concussions, cause if I have like a knee injury and it's swelled up and it's like, I can't even put weight on it. That's one thing. But this kind of, you know, repeated hits to the head or I have a headache for a day. And then it's like, Oh, I feel fine the next day, but like my brain's still healing. And so it's just kind of arbitrary. Like you can't really pinpoint and, and know. And there's such a conflict of interest with the doctors and the players and the doctors are, do not have the player's best interest at heart at all. It's really, they're working for the team and they're, it's their job to get you out there as fast as possible. And we're almost manipulated as players. We definitely are to play her. And we, they almost treat us like these outs, like, like we're kind of, being weak. If we like, Hey, like my knee is really not ready yet. Like, I think I need another week. They just like treat us with this energy of like guilt and shame of like, you're going to let the team down. You're not going to be out there. And so it's this really weird thing to navigate as a player in the conflict of interest while you're in it. And I haven't really been able to like, until I was done playing to really reflect on, Holy shit. Like this is such a bigger issue than we give credit to. And I have so many guys, even in my community that I've talked to that have gone through you know, some really hard injuries. Like my buddy, Mike Adams had a back injury and he went through this whole thing and they actually tried to get him to sign a release form by telling him it was something else. Like, Hey, just, just sign this piece of paper. So they absolve responsibility of owing any kind of money to them. And so, and, and he was like one of the best player offensive linemen on the team. And so there's like, nobody's really absolving of, of, of dealing with this. And, you know, one story with me and just talking specifically around the concussions is, you know, they talk about all these new protocols they put into place and, I, I had a concussion when I've only had a couple real concussions where I was like head trauma where I, like I, it affected my awareness. And the thing that I've experienced, I think is a, a, a challenge is when you get hit in the head and it's a traumatic hit, it releases all these like endorphins and feel good chemicals to kind of protect itself. So I'm almost in this euphoric state and it wasn't until my friends like, Hey, you're acting kind of weird. Like you should get checked out. Cause I remember blacking out. I hit this guy on the goal line. And I was just like, felt so good. And he, I was like, kind of saying some loopy things that I didn't really know, but he was like, Hey, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I feel great. And he's like, well, you should go talk to the doctor. And he actually took me in. It was at halftime and did the whole concussion protocol. And I remember one thing he asked me, he's like, Hey, save the, save the months of the year backwards as one of the tests kind of things to see if I was cognitive, cognitively there. And I was like, honestly, doctor, I don't think I could say the months of the year forward. <laughs> if I, if I didn't get hit in the head, he's like, okay, next one. And like, I ended up being able to like pass this thing. Cause he was like, well, where are we at? He's like, what's the score? And I remember being on goal line. And score. So I basically passed this thing and he put me back out in there and I actually played a few more plays that game. And I didn't know anything while I was there. Cause I was in this euphoric state of like, I feel great. And then on reflection, like, holy shit, like that's the most dangerous thing you can do is having a real concussion. Cause if I would have had a similar hit following it, that's when like literally the next stage is like, you could literally die on impact. And so the, the, it's just, it's not really where it needs to be. And there's such conflict of interest within the system that it's all, they don't really care about the players, but they're just continuing to, to try and put a good product on the field. And I think, you know, another layer that I've been thinking about too, is for the NFL, I think the long-term, the re, one of the reasons why they're trying to protect themselves from this narrative. And I think it's already starting to affect them. And it's going to be interesting to see the long tail of their product because a lot of younger kids and parents who are being uh, brought into their awareness, the brain trauma and the CT with all this new research over the last decade, 
they're either not allowing their kids to play football or a lot of really good athletes are deciding not to play football because they'd rather go into baseball or basketball or some other sport where it's not as risky to go into. And so that might not be showing up in the, on the field right now, but the long tail of it, when they have less uh, of a, of a, of a kind of a, a subset of, of athletes to choose from and the best athletes are choosing not to play football, how is that going to affect the product long-term as far as like really amazing plays and players on the field? No, yeah, you, that last point is worth delving in on because it is probably the most important battle on this issue right now is that, you know, the NFL, you know, now talks of the game about CT, but we also have to remember that it's it, the ethics are the least bad in a sport where you have 20 something and 30 something year old men choosing to play a sport for money, where they're compensated, where they have independent doctors, where the risks are theoretically known. Like that's, you know, we can go to sleep at night saying the NFL as a business is allowed to happen as long as not lying and covering it up to the players. But the question then becomes, what about kids? Mm. So we know that there's NFL players walking away from multi-million dollar contracts because they're worried about what they're learning about CTE. How are we, how do we have a million children under the age of 12 doing the same risky activity for no money, young, with no age of, you know, not even anywhere close to an age of consent or the ability to understand the risk that they're taking. So you talk about, when you started your story talking about like the childhood affinity for football, it's because we are all indoctrinated into the game as children, right? Mm -hmm. No adults pick up football in their twenties because they know how dangerous it is, mm -hmm. right? But the, but the real, like the painful injuries don't necessarily start showing up until you're a little bit older. So, you know, and then you're in the culture and then it's okay. Uh, and so the, like what we, what we try to keep driving home in this discussion about the game publicly is that we have the data now that would say we, we are almost certain that if you stop children playing before high school, you would cut future CT cases among anyone ever touches the field by half or two thirds, right? Cause you, it's a, it's a, it's a number of years you play. So if you cut out those first three or five years, you know, you're going to, your risk is going to be so much lower. Especially when and, they're in a, such a developmental stage as well. Right. I'm sure that has a, another issue. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so if the, if the NFL care about the players and didn't want to continue cleaning up this mess of older demented players, they would say, look, football's awesome. And you should play it as, as somebody who's gone through puberty and, and somebody's old enough to understand the risks. But for kids, we should have an alternative version where you don't get hit in the head 400 times a year. Mm -hmm. And in, instead of saying that, which is the, the ethically right thing to do, they're, they're doubling down on recruiting kids to the game. And I think it's because there's research out there that shows very clearly that children pick the game they're going to become a fan of and follow for the rest of their life in elementary school for the most part. And so whatever you're watching elementary school is what you're watching as a 50-year-old adult with disposable cash. And there's also research say um, the game you play is what you watch because you want to aspire to be those people. And so by getting seven-year-olds in this costume wearing this four-pound helmet and running into each other, they're creating future fans that mm -hmm. will spend money on the game and raise the value of the organization. That, that is, if CT wasn't a thing, <laughs> that's a good business model. But because you're giving some of those people a brain disease that will destroy their life, it's not a good business model. And we need like, that's the one thing that we need to do tomorrow. And it, it, you're right. Some people are starting to change their habits, not their kids play, but it's not enough. Yeah. It's not yeah. happening as fast. That's as it it. If, you don't, if you don't think there's this much thought and intention going behind this multi-billion dollar industry, I mean, it's just fascinating. Even like the whole marketing play of like the play 60 and like making it fun to play football. And they, they it's in their bed just to get as many kids playing football and then them supporting them to do that and providing equipment and, 
getting coaches. Like it's, it's all this long play to develop, you know, an income stream later on in life and getting good talent into the game. It's just really fascinating how much thought goes into every little detail. And that's what big business is. That's what all corporations, like how much money and thought and, you know, even like a side thing, like these social platforms, like how much money goes into making them as addictive as possible. I mean, it's just big business has so many resources to continue to improve and increase profit. It's, re- it's really fascinating. It's, I'm really grateful and, and, you know, respect you for taking on such a, a topic and confronting this kind of behemoth thing with all these resources and continuing to show up and do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, it's the right thing to do. It's also, you know, I get to work with amazing people and amazing families and, you know, we're trying to just, you know, ease the, ease the suffering out there. Right. Like, yeah. you know, the good thing, this is the positive part of football is football does become your lifelong friends and your family. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've not watched. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's fun to play uh, on, on Fridays or Saturdays. It's not as much fun during the week, but you suffer the practices for the games, but, and, and, and so, but I'm, I'm concerned about the guys I played with and I've already watched some of them start, start to suffer. Yeah. Let's, let's um, talk a, bit, a little bit about that. Cause you know, it's, it's like I talked about earlier in the show, like it's an underlying fear for me and, and all the CT and, uh, research and everything really started coming out publicly about halfway through my career. And it did play a role in my decision to walk away. And I saw a lot of people in the locker room when, you know, that movie concussion came out and they watched it and they were like, they were really questioning, like, is this worth it? And, you know, I got to a point where I had made enough money to be financially secure. And I had, I did leave millions of dollars on the table because I chose my health and long-term life expectancy and fulfillment and satisfaction. I chose that over the money because I know there's other ways to make money. Um, But let's talk about kind of for me personally, and like the other athletes that you're talking about, what is what can we do? What are some tools that we can be proactive with this thing? Is, is it kind of like a death sentence or is there, I'm sure the research is going to help as it continues to fold, but where are we at with that? And, and what does the future look like? That great question. Uh, yeah. So I'll start with CT is not a death sentence, right? You know, I think we want to really invest in avoiding it. And then I, the one thing that's special about NFL people is we can actually start to talk about how many people have it. So what was special about that? I mentioned that 110 and 111 NFL players study from 2017, that didn't mean that 99% of NFL players have it. But we did get the brains of that 111 people represented 10% of NFL players who died over these seven years we're collecting brains. And so we are very confident that 99% of the 10% had CT. So essentially 10% 10 is the minimum number of NFL players that that have this, you know, who are dying in the modern era. And the reality is we now get more brains and the number is still very high, so it's higher than 10%. So let's say it's at least 20%. At least one out of the five NFL players have this, and it could be half, it could be more than half, mm-hmm. right? So it, that's a scary thought, right? But it doesn't mean you're gonna definitely have it. Um, but then it becomes a question of well, what does it mean for you? And the answer is the we hear about the really horrible stories, we hear about the junior sales, we hear about the Aaron Hernandez's, we hear about the people who um, dying in, in spectacular ways or by suicide. And that is a part of this, this, you know, the disease and the spectrum we're looking at, but there's also a whole lot of people who are doing mostly fine until their sixties or seventies, and then start displaying severe symptoms with the disease. And then there's, and then there's that spectrum in between of some people who just, you know, seem to have bad luck or get midlife sort of 
you know, uh, bipolar diagnoses or other, other diagnoses, um, you know, they suffer with depression, they struggle with anxiety or, you know, just, they have impulse control issues. So yeah, there's other environmental variables that can make the CT kind of show up or worsen an already like depressive mind or bipolar mind or some other things, or they just, you know, don't know how to show up in the world already. And then the CT just really compounds that. So there's so many different variables, not just the CT that's causing all this stuff, but maybe some environmental stuff, relationship stuff, all that. Correct. So yes. And that's the other variables that besides the pathology in your brain, what's the other aspects of your brain health and what's the environment around you? You know, you know, there's a big difference in outcomes for people who have a supportive family who understands and those who, you know, uh, end up alienating the family members out of alone. They don't do as well, right? Mm-hmm. From my experience, uh, now that that's been published. So, the yeah, so it's important to realize, like for someone like you or me, it's like what can we control today, right? And so I'm I'm sort of living it that one part of what I'm trying to control is I'm trying to accelerate the research that will develop a, something that would it could actually stop the disease. But the other part is brain health and what you're talking about. You have all these things. Sleep is essential for, for brain health. And I, you know, I no longer set an alarm unless I have a very important meeting, right? Because I get as much sleep as my, as my body needs. I, I uh, mo- stopped drinking for, for six months. I've, I've had a couple of beers this summer, but I'm going to go back to it very soon. Um, you know, I'm trying to, I've lost 25 pounds last year. I'm going to try to get down to like skinny, you know, skinny X line in weight. I never quite made it, but I've seen you do it and I can see I got to get there. So it's, you know, di- you know, diet, uh, healthy relationships, you know, stress modification. I appreciated that we started with breathing exercises before this, mm-hmm. you know, that's it's, all that stuff matters so that you can live the best life you can as one strategy. And then the other strategy that I really am an advocate for is also supporting those longer term efforts to find the, the the solutions that actually can change your stop this rotting of your brain, which is within grasp, within our grasp. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah. yeah, just to reiterate, there are ways to, you know, continue to, um, be proactive with brain health. I think that's for everybody really. I mean, you talk about Alzheimer's and dementia is something that is pretty, you know, happens a lot in just the, the collective population as well. And it, it does come down to kind of an, our environment, our habits, our relationships, our stress levels, all of these things that you can really start focusing on. And it really just learning how to become um, a better human and, and really trying to, to navigate this life. I think there's just so much that correlation that goes into all of this. And I really want to say again and reiterate how you know, much I respect and appreciate the work that you're doing and, you know, being such an advocate and really trying to help, you know, not only just bring awareness to it, but really helping solve some of these issues, you know, do prevention and going up against these behemoth organizations and really trying to get them to buy in um, to really help support the individuals and the humans that this is affecting big time and not making it about, you know, all the bottom line and the money. And so, uh, I know it's uh, a lot of work and I can see you're really passionate about it. And, and obviously it's an experiential thing for you. You actually, you know, your own little worries about, you know, that it could possibly happen to you because of the sports that you played. So I just want to say thank you again. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to to drop in with me today and, and share this information. Um, can you maybe plug uh, uh, where people can find you, where they connect with you, maybe some websites and links that they can find more information and uh, maybe where they can get involved in, the, in those studies that we talked about as well. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you inviting me to come share this stuff. And I'll add one last point on your mindset. I know there's people concerned about this. Every time I start getting too concerned about CT in my future, I always remind myself, I'm going to die of something. <laughs> and I don't worry about all those other things I could die about day to day because they're not necessarily in the news every day. 
and mm. just remember that this is just one of many things that happens in life. Um, and so it, it's no value in stressing over it. And if you are, come, you know, come reach out and talk to us because we can help you talk to people to help you get in the right mindset, right? Mm. And so the way to do that, uh, concussionfoundation.org is our website. Um, there you can find the studies to participate in, so many educational resources, so many things. If you have symptoms, we have a helpline. We'll give you one-on-one support. To get me directly, I often find the, the best re- way is Twitter, Chris Nowinski1, uh, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-W-I-N-S-K-I-1. Um, you know, or you know, shoot me an email, Nowinski at concussionfoundation.org. You know, we try to really be there for everyone who reaches out. And, uh, and then the other thing that's, I think, worth mentioning is, you know, I appreciate that you're inviting me to share this. And I appreciate that you're you're taking you know talking about this issue very directly. The the one thing that's that's uh, still a fight, I find, is that um, we need like this is a in many ways a football player's problem. We're holding the bag. You know, we might be the largest population affected by this, and certainly the one we know today. We need more ex football players to get involved in figuring out the solution. Like again, this is, if it doesn't affect you, it's going to affect lots of people you care about. It probably already is. You probably know that. But there are so many ways to help advance this science. We're still just at the beginning. There's still so little funding relative to the size and scope of the problem. Um, you know, not just football players. You know, we're really finding out it's a big problem for veterans too. You know, it's a it's a patriotism thing, and, and for those who are motivated by that. So I encourage more people to get involved because we can win this battle in our lifetime. Mm, I love it. Let's rally the troops. And if this resonated with you, <laughs> definitely reach out. Let's get all get on the same page and really, you know, help support this mission in whatever way that we can. All of the information will be in the show notes. If you guys are interested in diving deeper, definitely reach out to Chris and let him know what you think. Uh, Chris, thanks again, man. I really appreciate the time and uh, I would, you know, love to stay connected and, you know, support the mission in any way that I can, whether it's through the Heart Collective and different initiatives and, and bringing in former athletes to really help be advocates to push this uh, new science forward. So thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. All right. Huge thank you to Dr. Chris Nowinski for coming on, for sharing uh, his, his wisdom, his knowledge, his experience, and his passion on this issue and really taking on, um, you know, pretty big business and really trying to shift the, the narrative and, and doing what's right for the individual human beings like myself and him. And, you know, he's really passionate about really helping serve this f- former player community and current players and just humanity really trying to look at these issues. And so deeply grateful for him, uh, excited to be on this journey with him and stay connected with him. Um, definitely go into the show notes. All the resources he talked about are available in there. Uh, if you want to learn more, um, and then obviously check out the heartcollective.com really passionate about, uh, being of service to the former elite level athlete community as well, providing, uh, resources, um, information, uh, tools, techniques, um, nutrition tips, all of this stuff to really help us reach our fullest potential and, and become healthier human beings, navigating some of the things that we maybe uh, put on our bodies uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, and like I said before the podcast, this is going to be the final episode of Life Beyond the Game. Um, and I'm not too sad about it because we're just merging the two. This is coming under the umbrella of Quantum Coffee. I'm going to bring on these athletes to talk about their healing journeys. And um, it's going to be really powerful. And so you're not, and if you don't want to miss that and you really enjoy this podcast, go subscribe to quantum coffee. And, um, yeah, I would love to hear any guests that you want me to have on anybody you want me to share their journey of healing, 
uh, and what that's like uh, and get behind the scenes uh, and join the conversation. I really appreciate everybody for the support. Really excited about the clarity that's coming to my own life and the work we're doing uh, through the Heart Collective and through Quantum Coffee Podcast. Thank you guys so much for the love, for the support. And if you want to continue on that journey with us, go subscribe to Quantum Coffee. I love y'all. Thank you again. Peace.